Well, there are at least three things in the Bible that are really clear about how Christians are to respond to the government. Number one, we are told to pray for our leaders, as we just did. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So one of our primary responsibilities, according to Scripture, is to pray for our leaders. Pray for those that God has placed in authority. Number two, the Bible is also very clear that we are to submit to those that God has put in authority. Paul says in Romans chapter 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So the Bible says plainly that God has placed in authority those who are in authority over us, and because they've been put in authority by God, we have a responsibility to submit to those authorities that God has placed over us. And number three, we are also told that when there is a clear contradiction between what God has commanded and what the government has commanded, we are to obey God rather than men. Perhaps the clearest statement of this principle is found in the book of Acts chapter 5. The apostles were preaching about Jesus, even though they had been told by the authorities in Jerusalem not to preach about Jesus. And so, it says, the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, meaning the name of Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. It is this third principle that comes into play in the book of Daniel chapter 6. We've actually already noticed it in Daniel chapter 3, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were commanded to bow down before an image, an idol that Nebuchadnezzar had built. They were to bow down and worship it, and yet they refused. Here in Daniel chapter 6, we see a similar thing happening, where Daniel is commanded, along with everybody else, not to pray to anybody but the king for 30 days. What is Daniel supposed to do? We are supposed to be subject to the governing authorities, but when the governing authorities say, do something God says not to do, or don't do something God says you ought to do, the Bible says we must obey God rather than men. Now, this may sound like an odd topic for the 4th of July, and as usual, I didn't pick it. This is just where we are in Daniel. It's God's providence that this is where we've ended up, but it is a very appropriate topic for the 4th of July because at the foundation of what distinguishes us as a country, and one of the things we're giving thanks for this morning when we give thanks for the privilege of living in this country is religious freedom, right? The freedom to worship God without coercion, without interference from the governing authorities. That freedom, what we call religious freedom, 
is one of the cornerstones of our country, but its roots are not merely in the Bill of Rights. Its roots are in Scripture. Its roots are in the reality that there is one God and all the rest of us, kings, presidents, or whoever, are merely creatures. And nobody else can stand between us and God and say, you have to do what I say regardless of what God has said. Nobody else, uh, nobody ought to do that, right? And when somebody does do that, the Bible makes clear how we are supposed to respond. So let's see how Daniel responded and what we can learn from this story about Daniel and the lion's den. Now, Daniel, we have seen from the beginning of the book, is a man of exceptional character and exceptional Giftedness. God had gifted Daniel with wisdom, understanding, the ability to interpret dreams. And Daniel has exhibited high character from the beginning. He did not want to defile himself with the king's food and wine, even though he was in a foreign country and under uh, a, a hostile authority. He still was determined not to dishonor God with his life. And so from the beginning, we have seen Daniel's character, Daniel's giftedness, Daniel's quality. And so we should not be surprised that even though we have shifted from the Babylonian Empire in the first five chapters to now the Medo-Persian Empire being the, the dominant ruling authority, Daniel is still, still found near the top. Even though the Babylonians who brought him from exile and trained him up and gave him a place in the king's court, even though that empire has been destroyed, the leader of the new empire, the Medo-Persian empire, Darius, has evidently seen in Daniel what we saw in Daniel in the first five chapters, and, and he's put Daniel in a position of authority. In fact, not only has he put Daniel in a position of authority, but the first few verses tell us that the king set up 120 officials over his empire. 120 satraps, they're called. And over those 120 satraps are three high officials. And Daniel is not just one of those 120 men, as significant as that would be. He's one of the three high officials overseeing the other 120. And we're told the king had planned to set Daniel above the other two of those three high officials so that he would become essentially the second person in command in the entire kingdom. So he was a uh, distinguished man, both in his abilities and in his character. Now, when you get set apart like that, elevated to such a high position, that almost inevitably creates envy and enemies. And Daniel had his fair share as well. The next few verses uh, tell us, uh, for example, like in verse 3, it's, or excuse me, verse 4, uh, the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel. You get elevated above powerful people who would like to have more power than they have, what are they going to do? They're going to try to find a way to bring you down so that they can have your spot. And so there were these men who were determined to find something wrong with Daniel, some complaint they could bring against Daniel, because apparently they didn't want Daniel above them. They wanted to be above Daniel. The problem was they couldn't find anything. 
Daniel was a man of such exceptional character that they could not find anything that they could bring before the king that would get Daniel in trouble. Verse 4 says they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. So they have to go to plan B. Verse 5. Then the men, these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So they recognize they're not going to be able to catch Daniel cooking the books. They're not going to be able to catch Daniel breaking the laws for his own advantage, abusing his position of power. They, they can't find anything like that. And so they said, Okay, the only way we're going to be able to get Daniel in trouble is if we can find something in regard to the law of his God where we can catch him. And they don't mean maybe he's done something against his God's law. What they mean is Daniel's living in a, in a country, right, in, in an empire, where God's law is not what governs the empire. It's a pagan empire. But Daniel is devoted to the law of God. So if they can find somewhere where the law of God contradicts the law of the Medes and the Persians, then they can get Daniel in trouble because they know Daniel's such a man, a man of such high integrity, they're never going to find him breaking the country's law unless he has to do it in order to obey the law of his God. Now, Daniel in that regard is clearly an example for us, but that's a pretty high standard to reach, right? That we ought to strive to be the kind of people that others can look at us and say, yeah, I, there's nothing I can find wrong with them unless you want to find fault with them for being a Christian. Unless you want to find fault with how devoted they are to the Lord. Right? Now, you know, none of us, and, and this would be true of Daniel as well, none of us are perfect. None of us have lived sinless lives. Right? All of us have things we have done that are sinful and wrong and whatnot, but but how are you doing right now? Are you living a life of integrity now? Can't change what you've done in the past, but God can forgive us, right, and cleanse us from that. But, but how about now? Are you living a life of integrity at work, a life of integrity with your family, where if somebody tried to dig into the way you're living now, they would say, you know, even if I wanted to get this guy fired, I couldn't do it. He doesn't steal from the company. He doesn't, you know break laws. He doesn't, he's not, you know, he's not living a double life. He's not doing wrong things on the, he's not abusing his power. He's a good guy. The only thing I can say is he's way too devoted to Jesus. That's the only thing I can find wrong with him, right? That, that's what we ought to, to aim for, right? That's the kind of life that Daniel lived. So these men who want to get Daniel in trouble, they hatch a plot against him. And what they come up with, and we see this in verses 6 through 9, what they come up with is they come together to the king and they say, King, we've got a great idea we want you to put into law. Our idea is you sign a law that says for a whole month, for 30 days, nobody's allowed to pray to anybody, God or man, except for you. Now, Darius thought that sounded like a good idea, apparently. Perhaps he thought this is a great way to unify the empire, unify the kingdom around the king. Perhaps he just 
was flattered by the idea and said, well, you guys all want to pray to me for a month. I mean, who am I to stop you? You know, Who knows why Darius thought it was a good idea, but he went along with it. He didn't see anything sinister in it. And so he signed the law. Now, here's the thing we learn about the laws of the Medes and the Persians in this chapter. The laws of the Medes and the Persians cannot be changed, even by the king. Once a law is established, it cannot be revoked. It cannot be overturned. It cannot be countermanded. It's it's there. And you're stuck with it. So... These men come up with the idea, nobody can pray to anybody but you, king, sign on the dotted line, and we'll put it into effect. So the king goes along with that, and he doesn't even realize what he has walked into, what he has done. Now, Daniel was a wise man, as we know. And so I suspect that Daniel knew what this was about. I suspect Daniel knew it was a trap, knew it was aimed at him, knew what was going on, but Daniel, whether he was aware of the motives behind it or not, Daniel did not change what he did when this law was put into effect. Verse 10 says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, so he knows about the new law, when he knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He doesn't hide the fact that he's praying. He doesn't say, well, I used to pray three times a day, but... Now there's a chance I'm going to get caught and get in trouble, so I could probably get away with one time a day. He doesn't say, ooh, you know, I haven't prayed in a long time, but now that I'm not supposed to, I probably ought to get back to it. Right? This is what he's been doing. Previously, he changes nothing. He doesn't hide. He doesn't uh, sort of he doesn't try to minimize how much time he's spending in prayer. He prays just like he always has. Doesn't hide it. Doesn't diminish it. He's, he's, not, he's not doing this only because he's not supposed to. It's not some sort of rebellious streak in Daniel. He's just doing what he's always done. He doesn't care what the law says. He's not going to change. He's not going to stop praying to God. And he's certainly not going to pray to the king. He's just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who said, King, you can throw us into the furnace if you want. We believe God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down to that image. We know the Ten Commandments. We know God said, don't make an image and don't worship it. So we're not going to do it. And Daniel knows that God is the only one who's worthy for us to pray to, And we must pray to him. It's not an option. It's something we are called and commanded to do. And so Daniel is going to keep doing it, even if the laws of men say that he shouldn't. And in this way, Daniel shows us the same thing the apostles showed us in Acts chapter 5, where the line is of when it is not only okay, but necessary to disobey the governing authorities. 
It's not okay when we just say, well, I don't like that law. That, that law does not make me happy. I don't enjoy that law. I think that law is, you know, silly or whatever. Well, okay, well, that, that's not what the Bible is talking about. But when the law says, when the governing authorities say, regardless what God has told you to do, we want you to do something different, something contrary. God says do, we say don't. God says don't, we say do. Either way, when that scenario happens, it's not only okay for us to disobey, it is required of us to disobey in order to remain faithful to God. And the reason for that is really simple. No king, no president, no governor, no man has the same authority, rights, privileges as God does. God is the highest authority. And anybody who contradicts God's authority is in the wrong. And in order for us to do what is right, we have to continue to submit to the authority of God even when some man or woman tries to usurp that authority and tries to act like they have more authority than God or equal authority with God. Nebuchadnezzar commanded people to worship an image he had made. He was acting like he was God. I get to decide who you worship. No, you don't. And we won't. These men who are trying to trap Daniel get the king to sign a law that essentially says, I get to decide who you can pray to. No, you don't. You can try. But we're not going to obey. We're not going to submit to a law that clearly contradicts the law of God. Now, there are other instances, right, that are not quite as clear. That's part of the way life works. Some things are really black and white, really obvious. Some things are not so clear. There are some scenarios where Christians are going to disagree over whether or not it's appropriate to disobey a certain law. But some of them are really clear. They say you can't worship? We do. They say you can't pray in the name of Jesus? We do. You do what God says, what's clear in His Word, regardless of what anybody else says. Now, when Daniel does this, the men who have plotted against him, they're ready to spring the trap. In verse 11, then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. It's like Daniel's doing something devious, you know, something, something dark and wrong. Here we are. We caught you red handed praying to God. That's the way they went after him. That's the scenario they tried to create. They tried to make it look like Daniel was some terrible person. Because he was doing what everybody ought to be doing. Praying to the Creator. Giving thanks to the God who made us, who loved us, who saved us. Daniel's not doing anything wrong, but they're trying to make it look like he's doing something wrong. And that kind of thing still happens. People still try to make it look like honoring Jesus, believing the Bible, doing what God says, makes you some kind of terrible person, some kind of, you know, 
cultural pariah or something. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about how they try to make it look. You do what you know God wants you to do. You worry about how God looks at what's going on. Because in the end, his perspective, so to speak, his decision, his determination, his judgment, his verdict is the only one that's going to matter. So they spring the trap on Daniel in verse 11. They bring him before the king in verses 12 and 13. And even here, they're still, they're still playing the game. They, bring him, they, they come before the king and they said, hey, you remember that law you signed? Oh, oh yeah. The king says, I remember the law. can't be changed. Then they say, well, guess who broke that law? Daniel. Now, you don't plan to elevate someone to the highest position in the kingdom, second in command under you yourself, unless you really have a lot of respect for that person. You probably really like that person, trust them, depend upon them. The king is not happy about this news that Daniel has been caught breaking this law that he has made. And it's not because the king is mad that Daniel's not praying to him. Right? Darius is not like Nebuchadnezzar, who's boiling with fury and rage because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't bow down to his image. Darius is not mad that Daniel won't pray to him. Darius is worried about Daniel. Darius doesn't want Daniel to die. Darius didn't see this trap coming, but if he had, he would not have been any party to setting it. He was duped by his own officials, and now he's stuck, and he doesn't like it. Verse 14 says, Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. He didn't want to throw Daniel in the lion's den. He wasn't mad at Daniel. But the king was powerless in this situation. Verse 15 says, Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. You sign the law. Even though you're the king, you can't change it. So try as you might, king, you can't rescue Daniel. The king was powerless. But of course, God was not. That is why the scripture says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Even the most powerful weapons and the most powerful people can and will fail you if you put your trust in them. The only one who will never fail you, who's always able to deliver, is the one true and living God. Daniel knew that. And that's why he did not compromise his commitment to God in order to stay in favor with the king or to obey the king's unjust, unrighteous, ungodly law. He remained faithful to God, in part because God's the only one who could rescue him anyway, who could deliver him, who could preserve and protect him. So Daniel's going into the lion's den. Verse 16, Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. 
The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. So the king wants Daniel to survive. He hopes that Daniel is protected, that God delivers him from the punishment that the king had to decree. Daniel goes into the den of lions, and notice what happens, verse 17. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Now, here's something I want you to think about. We know that the ultimate author of Scripture is God, right? God spoke through the prophets and through the apostles. All Scripture, 2 Timothy says, is breathed out by God. So God, who knows everything, right? He knows the future. He knows everything that's going to happen. He knows everything that has happened. He's the one who's inspiring the prophets, the apostles, the writers of Scripture. And he knew something that Daniel didn't when this verse was written. But you and I know it, because we've read parts of the Bible that weren't written when this happened to Daniel. You know anybody else who was put behind a stone that was sealed so that nobody could take that person out from behind that stone? Daniel may have been the first person, but he was not the last person to be sealed behind a stone as good as dead and come out alive. Daniel was as good as dead behind the stone because who survives spending a night in a den full of lions? You cannot escape. Nobody survives that. Nobody expected Daniel to survive that. Jesus was not just as good as dead. He was dead. He had died on the cross. He was put in a tomb. And they sealed it and put soldiers outside of it. So that no one could steal Jesus' body and pretend like he had been raised from the dead. But the seal and the soldiers could not keep the Son of God inside that tomb. When on the third day, he rose from the dead, the angels rolled the stone away, and the soldiers were frightened to death, and there was absolutely nothing they could do, and Jesus came out alive, never to die again. And Daniel's story is here to prepare us and point us toward what would happen to a man even greater than Daniel, to the God-man whose death and resurrection not only defied the earthly powers that tried to condemn and destroy him, but also secured deliverance for everyone else who will trust in him. So Daniel came out of the tomb. He's delivered from death. And how did this happen? Not only was there a stone that was sealed, that was removed, but there was an angel involved as well, right? Daniel says when the king comes the next day, he he hasn't done anything kings typically do all night. No diversions, no food, no sleep even. He's totally distraught about Daniel. So the next morning, he comes to the lion's den. He cries out, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? 
He wanted to hear Daniel's voice. I doubt he expected it. But he did hear it. Verse 21 says, Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. God delivered me. God sent his angel to deliver me. It's just like what happened in chapter 3, verse 28, where we're told God has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him when they were thrown into the fiery furnace. God has done it again here in chapter 6. Why was Daniel delivered? Well, he was delivered because there was no reason for him to die. Look at verse 22. Daniel says, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because... Because why? Because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Now, blameless is not the same as sinless. Right? Blameless means no major flaws, no major sins, so to speak. It doesn't mean perfect. But he says, I was blameless before God. I was doing what God wanted me to do. I'm in this lion's den, not because I've sinned against God, but because I've been faithful to it. That's part of why God delivered me. Also, King, I haven't done anything to harm you. This law where I was supposed to pray to you that I disobeyed and violated, I didn't harm you by doing that. Because... Prayer is not something that you are owed. I didn't sin against you by refusing to pray to you. I did not dishonor you by disobeying a law that never should have been written in the first place. I didn't sin against God in this. I didn't sin against you in this. That's part of why God delivered me. But not only that, he says uh, in verse 23, it says, And the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because, here's the second reason, because he had trusted in his God. Daniel was delivered because he trusted God. Just like we're called to do. Trust in the name of the Lord. Don't trust in chariots, don't trust in horses, don't trust in princes, don't trust in men. Let your trust be in God. Because he is the one who is able to, to deliver. Now in verse 24, it says that the men who had plotted against Daniel, they get what they designed for Daniel. But not only they, also their children and their wives. It's a gruesome ending to this story, right? But, think about this. A culture, an empire, a country that will put someone in a lion's den because they're praying to God, what else will they not do? Where will they draw the line on what is appropriate and acceptable and reasonable? We should not be surprised that an empire that has determined it gets to decide who is worshipped or who is prayed to does terrible things to its own people whenever it sees fit. Finally, this story ends where we've seen 
Stories end before in Daniel with praise to God, with the king recognizing that there is something significant, not just about Daniel, which he's already seen, but there's something significant about Daniel's God that everybody else needs to know. King Darius wrote to all the people, it says in verse 25, all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Fear this God, he says. For, because, he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Even Darius recognizes that there's something special about the God of Daniel, that he's the living God, that his kingdom is the one that will have no end, that he is able to deliver and rescue where no other God can, and he has demonstrated that in delivering Daniel from the den of the lions. How much more can we say that who know that God has not only delivered Daniel from the den of lions, but delivered his own son from behind the stone that was rolled before the tomb. Who raised up his own son from the dead never to die again, not only so that we could be forgiven of our sin, but so we could one day sing, where, O death, is your victory? And where, O death, is your sting? Our God is the God who saves And sometimes he saves and delivers in striking ways, even in this life. From a fiery furnace, from a den of lions, from a cancer diagnosis, from any number of things. He doesn't always do that, though. He doesn't have to. Because God's ultimate deliverance is not extending your life, but giving you eternal life in fellowship with him. In a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth. His ultimate deliverance was conquered through the death and resurrection of Christ. And for those who trust in Him, there is deliverance not only from sin, but more importantly from death. Because when Christ returns, the same Savior who came out from behind that stone, who came out alive from the tomb where He had been left dead, He is coming back, and the Bible says his resurrection is just the beginning, just the first fruits of the harvest. And at his return, all who belong to him will likewise be raised immortal to live in his presence with joy forever. And as great as the story of Daniel's deliverance from the den of lions is, this story is even better. Let's pray.